This episode may contain language or discussions that may be offensive or triggering. Refer to the episode summary for details. So welcome to the She Confidential Podcast. My name is Charlene Ketchum, and today I'm chatting with Tawana Carter. She's a licensed professional counselor and a licensed clinical therapist, and she's also a certified uh, hypnotist. Okay, am I getting this right? Hypnotherapist? Hypnotherapist. Um, So she has so many titles, y'all. I've been butchering it. Um, But we are going to talk about all those things that you do and our conversation today about anxiety. So a lot of people know, we hear people say, oh, I'm so anxious. And we know that a lot of people deal with, you know, struggle with anxiety and it can impact everything in our life. Um, So today we're going to talk about anxiety, how it manifests, causes, and different ways to manage it. So one of the first things that I have for you, Tawana, is how is it that a person who is hardworking, detail-oriented, super helpful to everyone, always on the go, and always in control, having anxiety? Like, how can that possibly describe someone who has anxiety? Absolutely. So we call it high-functioning anxiety. It's called high-functioning anxiety for a reason. It's because from the outside, Looking, you're looking at this person from the outside. They've got it all together. They may have the family, wonderful job. They may be volunteering in the community and, you know, they're running races and they're playing golf and they're swimming and they're vacationing and their life looks so wonderful from the outside. But what you don't see is you don't see on the inside. Oftentimes they're a mess. Sometimes they're professionistic. And they're always organized because they're scared to death. Something's going to fall to the, through the cracks. So what they do is they become overly organized. Everything has to be on a time schedule because we believe that. And, you know, I'm saying we because, you know, I'm going to fess up here. I have high functioning anxiety. We believe that if I can control every moment that everything happens, I can actually control it. And so that's a part of it is that that high functioning anxiety is because you are oftentimes embarrassed or maybe ashamed to have anxiety or maybe just embarrassed to say it scares me to death every time I've got to go on stage to talk to someone or it scares me to death every time I've got to do a presentation or for me, it scares me to death every time I have to speak to someone that I perceive in a higher authority position than I am. It was embarrassed. It's embarrassing to say that. So what do you do? You stuff it down and you do everything else as perfectly as you can on time, detail, organize. And then you have other people do all those things because it's all like a little wall that you built up to hide behind. If I do everything perfectly, no one's going to know how much fear and anxiety I have on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very long time before I realized that I had high functioning anxiety. It's because I always attributed my definition of anxiety was somebody who was like, oh my gosh, like scattered, you know, like overwhelmed with everything. That was how I perceived anxiety to be. And so when I was reading something and they said, oh, an anxious person can be that person who's very precise and needs to be in control and all these. And I was like, Hmm. Most of the time when we hear anxiety, we do see, you know, folks who are who are afraid of water. There's anxiety, you know, get anxious when they come, you know, to water. 
And I think it's important to understand anxiety. Anxiety is a survival function, right? That's the purpose of it. It's survival. If you, see, you hear the, 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 the rattlesnake, if you hear that sound, right, you're supposed to go into fight or flight because you got so much time to run away or stand there and fight the rattlesnake. So it's a survival function. But now we don't have to run from, you know, animals and all that kind of stuff because most of us live in places we don't have to do that. However, your brain can interpret anything as life-threatening, right? For me, speaking in front of people, I have social anxiety. So speaking in front of people, my brain interprets that as danger. Many people do. It's like the number one fear, public speaking. Most people will rather die than speak in public. So your brain hasn't interpreted that. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to make a fool of yourself. That produces anxiety. So what your body does is a response. And actually, there's five right responses to anxiety. It's fight, which most of us know. Some people here stand and fight. That's being argumentative, too. It's not always coming to blows, but it's being argumentative, like almost to the death, you're going to argue your point. Then there's, you know, the flight. That's the running away or the avoiding of people or walking out of a room or dipping inside or kind of of scooting to the back, hiding behind people. That's all avoiding behavior. There's also freeze. Most of us have heard of the term deer caught in headlights. The deer froze. The anxiety, that's their survival function. It just froze in place. Now, as a human being, it does not typically serve as well. There's also two others that most people don't know about. There's fainting. Some people do get so anxious, they actually faint. And I've known people who do that. They can be walking up to a stage, trying to speak or whatever, and they actually just hit the floor. They faint. And then there's also fawning. This is the one where there's you have all this energy. And it's trying to work this energy off. So you kind of caretake. Do you have what you need? Can I get you this? Can I do this? I move this over here. And you're consistently doing all these little bitty actions. You're constantly in motion. So that's fawning. And I see a lot of women, once I explain them what fawning is, yeah. they go, oh my gosh, <laughs> I actually do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you fawn, but you never get the thing done you're supposed to get done. Yeah. But you go, but I did, I did a lot today. It just yeah. wasn't the stuff I was supposed to get done. So those are all the anxiety you know, reactions we can have. And we normally see that outwardly manifest, and that's what we think as anxious. But mm-hmm. there's some other other symptoms of anxiety, right? Did you know that you can get blurred vision when you're anxious? And I've had that to happen. Um, the folks that the, the the frozen, the frog in the throat, or the frozen voice, like you cannot speak, that's also a function of anxiety. So the blurred vision, you lose a little bit of sight, tunnel vision, and they're they're all again survival functions. If you're fighting a snake, you don't need to be worried about what's happening on your peripheral. So therefore, you get this tunnel vision. Also, it can kind of wreak havoc with your blood pressure going up or down. And so Mm -hmm. that's why you may get the the blurred vision sometimes. But again, outwardly manifestations that people with high anxiety, they hide. They Mm -hmm. hide. They tamp it down. They push it down. I know folks who are physically ill before a presentation. They're in the bathroom throwing up or having diarrhea. And then they come out and they put on a suit in the face and they go forward and they do the speech or whatever they have to do because they've done everything outside of the public's eye and you never see that. And so the danger is, is you're having all this pressure consistently on you and you're pushing it down. You're never resolving. When we're under stress, we produce cortisol and we produce adrenaline. 
The thing is, is those two chemicals, they won't produce some other chemicals as well. For instance, grayling, which makes you hungry when you're anxious mm-hmm. and you, or you can't sleep, you gain the, the belly fat, right? Yeah. But the thing is with adrenaline and cortisol, they work to work on, they destroy the body. They end up destroying tissues. They're supposed to be there to get you to safety, either fight and get to safety or run and get to safety. And then they, they're stopped being secreted. But if you have high functioning anxiety, you're under a lot of stress, you're consistently secreting these hormones and they they attack different parts of the body, which is why you, you have folks with a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety that's not managed. You have hypertension. Mm-hmm. You can develop hypertension, heart problems, mm-hmm. diabetes, mm-hmm. arthritis, lupus, and, and, and fibromyalgia. And these are all autoimmune diseases because those chemicals are breaking the body down. So that's why, you know, most folks will look at high functioning, especially women, high functioning women go, you got it all together. You're doing it great. What's the problem? I don't see the problem. Well, it's because what you're doing is you're breaking down your body. And over time, that's not good. You can eat, you know, stress has actually been linked to cancer. So if we don't manage it because we're tamping it down, because we're embarrassed to say that I'm anxious over the time, over the long run, it actually hurts you physically. And if you lose your health, everything's off. Yeah. No matter how wonderful your family is, how great your job is, and how much you love Switzerland, once you lose the health, all bets are off. Yeah. And this, you know, this, what you're describing, the impact of anxiety resulting in stress and how that impacts the body, it makes me think of a discussion that we, we had on, on the show it was episode 47 with uh, Dr. Omalara Uemedimo, and she referenced um, some research, and you're probably familiar with it, given what, what you just broke down. It, she referenced some medical research, and I can't remember the research off the top of my head, so I don't want to mess up her name, um, but I'll put it in the show notes, the link to the research. Um, but in the research, it showed that Black women have, or our life expectancy is reduced because of our exposure to chronic stress and the toll that takes on our bodies. And so as you're breaking all this down even further and you're talking about how anxiety can lead to stress, these increased cortisol and adrenaline levels in our bodies and how that breaks down body systems and everything, that's further connecting the dot to how black women have these higher incidences of obesity and cancer and diabetes and hypertension yeah. and everything. So it really, I mean, it's all connected. And when we it, talk about anxiety, we don't think about anxiety really does impact our health. That myth of the strong black woman. You don't hurt. You can do it all. You can take it all. You can experience it all. You can, you know, jump the mountain, leap the buildings with one single leap. And there's nothing ever wrong with you. You never slow down. It is a myth, right? It is a myth. And, and yes, a lot of black women have diabetes. A lot mm-hmm. of black women have hypertension because mm-hmm. we're holding on to all of the stress. And sometimes we're not even given permission to say, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, I'm tired, because we think we've got to be on and we have to be the, you know, the solvers of everyone else's problems. But again, it, it goes back to that. We tamp, the, we tamp it down, high functioning anxiety. We continue to push down, push down, push down so we can continue to perform. Yeah. 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 Because we, we don't know that it's it's killing us. Like it really yeah. is killing us. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You and know, so what is 
Go ahead. Mm-mm, go ahead. It's at some point, it's understanding either give yourself permission to do the self-care we talked about mm-hmm. before or have that support circle that holds you accountable for being sure you're getting the self, you know, that self-care. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was my question. Like, what do we do? So like, once we have this information, because when Dr. Romano said that reference that research, I was like, oh my gosh, there's actual research that's, and it's, and then, so I went and found the article and I read it and I was like, oh my gosh. So one, like, why is like every wellness professional needs to be talking about this, needs to be aware of it and needs to be talking about it because this is, this has huge implications because a lot of times I hear, and I've seen wellness professionals do this. And this is why I mentioned them. Like I've seen some wellness professionals who shame people in the black community, particularly black women, because they'll talk about the obesity rates and they'll say, well, quit eating, you know, this food, this bad food, get off the couch. You need to move more. You need to do this. Not all of it is related to lack of activity yeah. or diet. Although yeah, I, I know folks who, who exercise five, six times a week. Right. But again, remember that stress, chronic stress and anxiety, you produce different, you know, you produce other hormones in, adduce, in addition to that adrenaline and cortisol. But cortisol does, you get the, the belly fat, which is yeah. unhealthy. And so you gain weight. Also, if you are chronically under stress and anxiety, it doesn't matter sometimes how much you exercise or what you're watching to eat. Your body will hold on to that. And you still gain weight. Yeah. And so it's always you have to look at. That's why when I talk to people about losing weight, definitely go see your primary care physician, your PCP, because you need a total workup to figure out why sometimes you are gaining the weight. I remember being in Desert Storm and I had a soldier that was stressed about being in a war zone. Very young, like 1920, right? Mm-hmm. And over the course of a month or so, gained like 35 pounds. It is possible when you are stressed that whatever you eat, you hold on to it all. And then if you eat extra calories on top of that, you can definitely, your weight can like balloon all of a sudden. It doesn't take forever in a day to put that weight on. Yeah. It's because stress breaks on the body and understanding that, you know, we talked about anxiety as a fight or flight function, right? Survival function. Well, if your body's in survival mode, it's not going to digest your food regularly, right? When you are anxious, that digestive system goes on hiatus because your body is putting the energy towards being ready to fight or run. So you can imagine if you're spending most of your days in fight or flight, your body is not digesting food properly. So that's when you have the gut disturbances. You do. You do have the gut disturbances. You really do. IBS and Mm -hmm. diarrhea and constipation, Mm -hmm. all of those things can make you, that gut, it just messes it up, right? So you're talking about the constipation and consistently Mm -hmm. eating and IBS you know, IBS, you can have diarrhea or you can have constipation. But when you have mm-hmm. constipation, that means it's sitting there and you're gaining weight. And so it's not mm-hmm. just move. Of course, we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about, you know, five to seven times a week, 30 minutes a day. And it doesn't matter what it is. You can put on a record and dance, walk up and down the steps, always see your mm-hmm. PCP to be sure you're not harming anything else. That is great. But there are people who say, I do. 
I exercise, mm-hmm. I lift weights and I watch what I eat and I still gain weight. Stress yeah. and anxiety because you're pushing it down. you got to get that body out of survival mode, yeah. right? To start really looking at losing weight. And that's probably why so many women get ain't mad with men because a man can stop eating bread and just psh, drop weight. But yeah, you're walking around with all this anxiousness. Your body's okay. like, it's not. It's not just improper. Yeah. Right? Another yeah. reason. And uh. then also understand that if you don't get enough sleep, and many folks with anxiety do not sleep enough, you are going to gain weight. It's very difficult to lose weight if you're not getting enough sleep. I have sleep apnea. And I remember my doctor saying, we're going to fix sleep apnea because you got to sleep. You're not going to lose the weight because you're not sleeping. And she was right, you know, had the, 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 you know, had lost the weight, got the, the, um, sleep apnea under control. Then I, it was easier to walk and lose weight. But before that, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't. So all those body systems actually go together, right? Cause mm-hmm. if you're not sleeping, you're going to gain weight. And yeah. if you're consistently eating and your digestive system is not working properly, you're probably going to gain weight. Now there are other folks mm-hmm. who go the other stream, they get anxious and they don't eat. But that's yeah. still not healthy because you're not getting all those nutrients that you need. So, you know, it's not mm-hmm. healthy to, to, to not eat and say, okay, you're fine. Just keep that anxiety. No, yeah. <laughs> because it's still working on those other systems. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that, you know, that I'll share, like from personal experience, like when you talk about disturbances of the gut, like it's real. And so for me, like my anxiety generally manifests in my stomach. And so it's like, I I won't want to eat or if I eat like I'll have an upset tummy or whatever my stomach will just hurt like it won't be because I have diarrhea or constipation it's like it'll just hurt like I will have abdominal pains like this if I'm very stressed because for for whatever reason if I'm very stressed my stomach's gonna hurt and recently I discovered I had so many different food sensitivities and what a lot of those food sensitivities were linked to was that my gut is imbalanced. Now, part of that is because of some of the chemicals and things that are in our foods, but also a lot of it is because of stress and the impact that stress has on your gut. And the reason why like our gut needs to be balanced is because most of our immune system is in our gut. Right. <laughs> so That's if your right. immune system if your if your stomach if you can't your body can't absorb nutrients so I was so deficient in so many nutrients like iron, um, vitamin D, vitamin B like we know those are things that give you energy so I was dragging and had difficulty focusing and that coupled with the food sensitivities because my gut was off it couldn't even eating clean quote unquote eating clean eating healthy foods. Like my body was rejecting it because my gut was a mess from stress. So I encourage people, go to your doctor, ask, they can test you for food sensitivities. They can test you for those nutrient and vitamin and mineral deficiencies, get a full workup, get your hormones checked. In addition to cortisol for women, it's a little bit more complicated for us. Because you got to check other hormones and things that could be impacting your weight gain and all that stress stuff. I mean, the first step, go to the doctor, get a full workup and use that to work in conjunction with your therapist and or coach so that you can manage that stress. Because the doctor can they can give you things they can give you, you know, the things to supplement your nutrient and vitamin deficiencies. But until you address that stress and those lifestyle things. 
the cycle will continue. It's the elephant sitting in the room and you're sweeping around it and not handling the elephant, right? And so, uh, of course, with the with the gut, you know, when I get diarrhea and I remember having a soldier, um, every time it was time for him to take his this SQT test, skills qualification test, everybody would ask where he was and they kind of roll their eyes on the toilet because some folks get diarrhea. You get anxious and you get diarrhea. And so it, it is very uncomfortable. It's embarrassing, but it goes to show you just how much anxiety can affect the body. It really can. Yeah. Are there strategies that people can utilize, like if they start feeling them? So if their anxiety stems from a particular activity or event, are there certain things that people can do to kind of counter that? And so I like to do, I like to tell my, you know, my clients, you know, let's do a 360. You know, when you feel like you're anxious, stop, write down everything that you see. What do you see around you? What do you hear? What are you smelling? You know, are you eating anything particular? You're touching anything? The 360, all five of those senses, as many as you can. Write down what you see, everything around you. And then I'll also tell them to write down 360 internal. In other words, what were you thinking? What were you thinking about when you saw this? What were you thinking? What did you think you you know that you heard? Write those things down because human beings were based on patterns. All of you does it. Even spontaneous people, you have patterns, right? A lot of people don't know that 55 to 90% of what we do on a daily basis is actually pushed by the subconscious, not the conscious brain, but the subconscious brain, right? If you don't believe that, have you ever gotten in your car, went to work or went to a supermarket and got there and parked the car and went, how did I get here? I don't yes. remember <laughs> that because you can do that because your subconscious was it knew where to go, where to turn, when to hit the signal and all of that, right? And so the thing is, is when your subconscious is pushing things, you're not necessarily aware of it. So you got to be conscious of it. We're all patterns, patterns. I can guarantee you most people are going to brush your teeth the same place in the same way. You're going to put about the same amount of toothpaste on it because we're creatures of habit, creatures of patterns. Writing it down allows you to see your pattern. I had a client that... Um, her, her cardiologist sent her because she was going back and forth, thought she was having anxiety attacks, panic attacks, her heart was hurt. And really great doctor said, this is not heart related. You have anxiety. You need to go see a therapist, right? She came to me. And so she did what I did, the 360 outside, the 360 inside. In about two weeks, we found out that her anxiety was auditory. It was something she was hearing. Not what she ate, not what she saw, not it was what she was hearing. She would never have known that had she not taken the time to start journaling, writing it down. When you feel in a certain way, stop, write down all the facts. And you don't have to physically write it down, although it's good. You can do a note taker on your phone. You can do an auditory. There are, you know, there are electronic journals. You can put things down. But the longer you start journaling, the more apt you are to look back and see the pattern, right? So journaling in and of itself is like therapy. We call it metacognitive, right? Meta means thinking, cognitive thinking. It's thinking about your thinking, thinking about what you're writing. There's a, you know, there's a connection between your brain and your hand when you're writing things. And when you come back later on and you read what you wrote, you can get these insights and this awareness. And that's why I love to tell people to journal. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't journal, but when I call it logging, I journal. So whatever words you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> 
I do not journal. I will log. I will log things. I don't journal. So you can log things and get the same benefit. It is being aware of who you are, where you are, and what you're feeling. A lot of folks don't even know that they're anxious. I remember getting um, a, a massage, and after I was done, she said, you're a single parent, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She said, I can tell. She said, you know what? I want you to each go through your day. I want you to locate your shoulders and then tell them to lie down. She said, because here's what you do. All day long, you're like this and you're going. She said, I could tell because I had to work so hard to get the knots out. She said, I want you to find your shoulders during the day, tap them, and then put them down. Yeah. Because sometimes we are so unaware of our own bodies. We don't even know we're walking around like this or like this. We're tapped. That's anxiety. That's tension. So tap those shoulders, put them down. There's tons of breathing that you can do. And I have my clients do all kinds of different types of breathing. The reason why they work is several fold. If you do it right. Now, some folks say, well, breathing doesn't work. You just haven't found the right one for you. If you do it right, number one, you're getting in extra oxygen to your brain. And that is a signal to the brain like, hmm, let me look at things. Maybe we're not as bad off as we thought we were. Because remember, when you're in anxiety, you're anxious, you're in fight, flight, run, fall, or freeze. When you get extra oxygen to the brain, your brain's like, I think we can start relaxing. That's kind of extra there, right? And I have folks do, um, is, you know, really to do the, to get your, fill up your diaphragm. So if you breathe like this, <laughs> that doesn't work because you're breathing from the chest. You do have to breathe from the diaphragm. You have to extend that diaphragm mm-hmm. so that it touches those nerves up and down your back, that full belly breathing when your diaphragm is full. After you touch those nerves that run up and down your back after so long, about two minutes or so, your vagal nervous system can downgrade. And you, you're you anxious because your body says, I'm not safe. But yeah. when your body feels safe, then you don't have to worry about anxiety. There's no reason to protect you. So really, when you stimulate that vagal nervous system to downgrade so that your body feels safe, you will not be anxious. You will be calm. And I have, <laughs> I have one lady I did it with. It was about two minutes of breathing. She said, what kind of voodoo is this? (laughs) (laughs) She was so anxious and in two to three minutes, got her calmed down and relaxed. She's like, what did you do to me? It's like, I didn't do anything. First of all, it is not voodoo. (laughs) (laughs) But second, you know, it is about occupying the thoughts, getting the body to relax, triggering their brain to feel safe. So you can come out of survival mode and just be calm and relaxed, right? Mm -hmm. And I say to people, if you're only getting three, four hours, five hours of sleep a night, it's a vicious cycle. The more you don't sleep, the more anxious you are, the more stressed you are, but you're not healing. The body heals during sleep. You know, a lot of folks don't know we had, there are three levels of awareness, right? We're in Bravo right now. We're alert. We're talking. Now, when you study real hard, you can't be in gamma. You have alpha. When you start getting sleepy, you start to kind of go down. You go down to your alpha phase, right? And that's the phase that we do hypnosis in. Once you go through your alpha, the next phase you drop down to is your theta phase. And the theta phase is a deeper level of hypnosis that we all go into when we go to sleep. We go through the phase of hypnotic phase, right? Then you get to delta phase. That's your deep sleep. That's where you're going to be the healing in. If you're only getting three, four, five hours of sleep, you're not, you're almost never hitting Delta, probably never hitting Delta. So your body can't heal. The folks who come in, I see people 
who are stressed and are anxious, like, I can't get over this. It's been a year. It's been, I cannot get over this. It's, How much are you sleeping? Oh, about three hours a night. And my mouth just falls open. We have to get you to sleep. You're not going to resolve the anxiety, even with depression. You're not going to resolve depression or get to the point mm. where you start getting better if you are not sleeping. Your body's not healing, not to mention your heart is taking a beating. It's never resting. And now mm. you got the hypertension, you got the heart diseases that can come into play, all linked back to anxiety and stress. Mm. Yeah. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have a CPAP. I have sleep apnea, and I did did not realize I was I was guilty. I was that four or five hour person for about ten or fifteen years, and but as a result, I have hypertension. That's one of the reasons. You just have to take care of the whole body, and sleep is important. I know we think it, it's not that. Now catch a few naps here, a few Z's there. Sleep is really important to managing anxiety, depression. You know. Um, losing weight it's important for all of that yeah. yeah you know that mantra I, I heard used to hear a lot of people say oh i'll sleep when i'm dead you know well, you keep hard. keep working that way you're gonna be there sooner than you want to <laughs> it's like okay I'm, you know i am a testament to like sleep will break you down like yes. during law school, like I was in law school and I was working full time and people who've like watched a lot of the episodes of the show have heard me talk about this, but I say it over and over because I don't want us to glorify the grind anymore. That's right. Because when I tell you, like I was operating off three, four hours of sleep for years because I went to grad school and was working full time. Then I did law school and was working mm -hmm. full time. All I could get was three or four hours of sleep and it wasn't quality sleep because I was anxious because I would go to bed thinking about all the stuff I had to do. So I wasn't even hitting all those, those sleep cycles and stuff that yeah. I needed to, because I was thinking my brain was going with all the stuff that I needed to do. And so what happened? I started having to grab like sugary things and caffeinated things to give me that temporary energy to keep me going. Like I was like a drug addict. I would go to Starbucks. I would get me a macchiato, a caramel macchiato with double espresso shots. When I got off from work, they would tie me over because I went to law school at night. So I would, they would tie me over till I got out of classes because classes were four hours. So then I needed to go home and read for to get prepared for the next day in classes. And so I would get another one on my way home to help me stay up so that I could do some of my readings. But then I had to be at work at seven o'clock in the morning. And so sometimes I would go get some in the morning too, to be alert at work. And I did this for like four or five years. Yeah, yeah I yeah. gained weight. I don't, you know, it was the, I, the grace of God that I didn't develop hypertension, but I gained a lot of weight and I had increased inflammation, which is not good for your heart. That's right. um, so all exactly. those things, it's like sleep, sleep, like you cannot function. I wasn't, I stopped exercising. I used to, before law school, I was like four or five days, strength training, hardcore exercising. Well, I couldn't do that because I was exhausted. Cause yeah, the sugar and caffeine exactly. will help you stay up, but it doesn't really give you that energy that you need to push through a workout. You can try to do it, but then that's extra stress on your body. So that's the other thing. I actually had like my wellness coach and good trainers, because not everybody who's in the industry is actually thinking about your holistic 
approach. But I had good trainers say to me, I would rather you sleep in an extra hour than get up and go work out when you're already sleep deprived because exercise is also stress on the body. And ideal, if everything else is in balance, it's good stress. But if your body's already struggling and you're sleep deprived, we don't need to add that extra layer of stress. And so that's why it's so important, y'all, to like know your numbers, go to the doctor, get those assessments, get assessed for sleep apnea, because a lot of people have sleep apnea and do not know it. And it is correlated, as you pointed out, Tawana, it's it's related to sleep quality and unmanaged, undiagnosed sleep apnea is hard on your heart. It can kill you. It can kill you. So sleep apnea. So can you describe actually what sleep apnea is for people? Yes. So sleep apnea is when you're sleeping at night and you, for me, my throat closed off and I, Mm -hmm. I stopped breathing. Yeah. And so what your body does, because you're not getting oxygen, you're not breathing. Mm -hmm. Um, I would kick my leg and that was my body's response to try to wake me up. Right. So you lay down, especially if you lay down on your back, you're snoring. And then, you know, that throat comes together. You're not getting air. You're not getting oxygen. And typically you will, there are nights where I jumped up straight out of my sleep and stood in the middle of the floor. But that was a reaction because my body had stopped breathing. And literally I was dying. When I went to do my sleep study, and that's what they'll do, um, your doctor will order what's called a sleep study, and they'll hook you up to all these electrodes, and then you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, my doctor was really good. She actually gave you medic- a sleep. She gave me, I think, Ambien, because, you know, some folks can't sleep in a weird space. And then they tell you to sleep on your back. When I did the sleep study, my sleep apnea was so severe, they stopped the study like a couple of hours in. It just came on and slapped the CMAT, the, the CPAP, the mask on me, right? And so I was like, I don't think I slept all night long because the next morning they'll fit you. And I was just, you know, I was dragging from the medication, but I was like, I could have sworn I just went to sleep a couple hours ago. And so when I went to the to the hospital, you know, I went to the office to see her. She said, I've never had a patient to dial me and I wasn't having one now. She said, we stopped your sleep study because it was so severe. You were stopping breathing like 139 times an hour, which is severe it was off the chain she said oh yeah we, we just been we had given you andy and so the chances of me going to sleep and not waking myself up were high right okay. and so um if you're one of those people where at nighttime all oh, it's just you and you feel like someone's kicking your bed like it's you just you're waking up like who's oh, kicking my bed you may want to go to your doctor and get checked and say hey i need to do a sleep study because i have this because that's your body waking you up you know a lot of folks will sleep apnea will say they wake up at night and they see people standing at the their bed. And it's just your body is trying all kinds of things to wake you up so you mm-hmm. can breathe. Right. And so when you wear CPAP mask, you wear a mask and um, it's blowing continuous positive air pressure. That's what CPAP stands for. You put the mask on and the machine is consistently blowing the air, positive air in, you know, through your mouth so that your throat doesn't close off and you stop breathing. And so not everybody that snores has sleep apnea, but snoring is one of the signs. But again, if, you know, if you have a partner and your partner tells you you snort and you snore, <laughs> you may want to get checked out because that's your body is stopping breathing, right? And it's snorting, trying to get air through to, to wake you up. And so those are some of the symptoms. And I got to tell you that I, I've never had a problem with my CPAP. 
I was so happy to get it because that was the best sleep I'd ever had in the hospital. Once they put it on, that was the best sleep in, I don't what, 10, 15 years. I was so excited when she said, you have sleep apnea. It's severe. We're going to fit you. I prepared for the day mine came. I did my exercise. I took a shower early. (laughs) Hey, when you start sleeping, you And I went to sleep and I've never had a problem because I haven't slept. And I tell you, this is an amazing thing. If you don't think the sleep affects your heart, here's, I'm going to tell you something. My sister and I went on a vacation in Aruba um, a couple of weeks after um, I got my CPAP because my sister said, we sleep in the same room and you doing all this snoring and snoring. <laughs> <laughs> so we get there and I'm dizzy. I start to get like really dizzy and holding onto the walls and I don't understand. So I have a I have a blood pressure cuff and I took my blood pressure and my blood pressure had fallen to 110 over 50. And at the time my mom was living, she's a nurse and I call her up. I said, I don't know what's happening. I'm dizzy. My head is spinning. I'm holding it to the wall. She said, well, what's your blood pressure? I said, it's 110 over 150. She said, oh my God, stop taking your blood pressure medication. Stop. And so what it was was my body was actually now resting and I didn't need as much blood pressure medication. So I had to go back to the doctor and say, hey, my blood pressure dropped to 110 over 50 and I was dizzy and, you know, holding on to the walls and they lowered my blood pressure medication because oh I was getting God. sleep at night time. Yes. I kid you not. Yes. And so when we think about the impact, like unmanaged sleep apnea has on somebody's heart over time. And we think about the correlation of we know that black women have very high incidences of heart disease. Yes. Y'all, it's all it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I've had that CPAP about seven or eight days. And so it took seven or eight, just about a week or so. And my body got sleep because I could actually, I'd been on a four or five hour sleep for so many years. I had to work up to six hours. So I started getting between that six and seven hours and my blood pressure dropped. It was like, I don't need the medication. They took me off everything, but basically water pills because I didn't need that because I was actually resting. So yes, definitely all connected. I cannot tell you how important it is, is to get enough sleep. And make sure you're chatting with your doctor. Because sometimes we feel the symptoms are silly or our imagination. And I don't want to say that. What are they going to think of me? Like, it was it was years before I told people how many times I woke up at nighttime and saw somebody sitting at what I thought was standing at the foot of my bed. And I started telling other people, I was like, oh, yeah, I do that too. I was like, really? I'm not crazy? It was like, yeah. But it's things that you don't realize because we don't, we don't bring these things up to our doctor. Yeah. 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 And I I'm I thank you for sharing that because I think this is also why it's important for us to have conversations with our friends and be transparent about what's going on with us. Yeah. Nothing is ever silly to talk to your girls about. Yes. I mean, tell them because you never know what other people's experiences are. You know, a lot of things just don't come up because people may be ashamed, you know, to say like, oh, I did because there's so much shame attached to all of it. You know, even though a lot of it is, yeah, we we do make choices to push ourselves as far as we do. But there's a lot of reasons behind that, that 
that create those conditionings and mindsets that lead us to do way too much. And we also glorify the grind and the hustle and the sleep yeah. when I'm dead ideology. And so we need to be transparent with each other and say like, hey, you know, I'm going through this. Like, has anybody heard about this or whatever? You know, and if you have a doctor who is not receptive to your concerns and will not send you in for testing, because you know, I had that happen too. Somebody who didn't want to send me in for testing when I went in and said, hey, I'm feeling groggy. I can't focus and all these things. And this person said to me, because I have an underactive thyroid. And so at that time I said, maybe we need to do a test and check my thyroid. And this doctor at the time said, well, you're probably diabetic um, because you're African-American and you're overweight. And I was like, okay, well, we can check that, but we need to check my thyroid as well. She didn't, She refused to order any other test other than diabetes screening. And so I went to a different doctor, which a lot of people, because I have a background of working in healthcare and I have friends who are clinicians, and I'm also like, you, you not going to not give me the testing I need. I was able to empowered enough to be able to advocate for myself and go find somebody else. But a lot of people don't know that they have those options. And so that's why I tell this story. But I went to go see another doctor, told them my symptoms. And I was scared like that I had lupus or something because I'm like, I've never I was having brain fog. I was like, I've never experienced this kind of thing. And uh, and I said, I was eating healthier than I had ever been eating. I'm like, I was using my fitness pal. I'm like, I'm logging all my meals. I'm working with a wellness coach. I'm trying to exercise every day, but I was so fatigued and just exhausted wow. that I couldn't. And so the doctor ordered, again, that was when we ordered all those tests. He's like, I want to check and see if you have any food sensitivities. We're going to check for any vitamin deficiencies. All these things. We'll check your thyroid. We'll check for diabetes. Did all check hormones and everything came back with red flags except for the diabetes. Wow. See. So the one thing she wanted to screen me for was the one thing that we weren't, we didn't have to look at. It was all these other things that related to gut imbalances and then some hormonal things. And it's like, again, which is, is again related to stress and things like that. Yeah. And so y'all, I cannot emphasize enough advocate for yourself. If you have yes. a physician or yeah. a health practitioner who will not order the test, who will not listen to you, find a new one. Do it immediately because waiting, it could cost you your life. Like by the time I, we got all my supplements and everything, and I, it took a few months for me to start feeling better, but oh my gosh, to like be able to focus again and have energy to do things again, game changer, game changer. But I had waited a little bit before I went to the doctor because I was scared because I was like, I don't know what they're going to say. And because I had to find a new doctor too, because I had moved and everything, you have to go through all that. And then just that apprehension that we know we deal with as black women in the healthcare system, you don't know what type of discrimination you'll have to deal with. And but I was ready. I'm like, you want to come for me? I'm going to come for you. And so when that physician was ignorant like that, I wrote letters. Um, I wrote a letter to, and I'm sharing this because I want people to know how you can advocate for yourself and hold people accountable. I wrote a letter to her medical practice, to the state medical board, to the insurance company. 
Um, because I wanted them to understand this is someone who f- refused the basic standard of care. Right. Like you order the test, order the test. And my little cat is crying in the background for Aww. some reason. <laughs> um, so <laughs> he just woke up and he's like a baby. Um, so I'm like, that was the basic standard of care. So don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Like it's really that serious. What, what I tell my clients is, even when they come to see me as their therapist, because, you, you know, you do develop a close relationship with your therapist. It's very easy for a client to figure, figure that, well, you're the therapist, so you know everything. I always tell people, you are with yourself 24 hours a day. You see me one time, once mm-hmm. a week or twice a month. Mm-hmm. How can I possibly know better about you than you do? And I say mm-hmm. that to you. You live with yourself 24 hours a day. That doctor just has a snapshot. You know, I started early on when I went to the doctor, I would go in with a sticky note because you get in there, you get stressed to get there on time and you sit there and you wait, you're agitated, you're irritated, frustrated. And you go in and everything you want to talk about, this poop out goes, right? So I started, I started going in many years ago with a sticky note with everything I wanted to address. And I had a really great doctor in Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. Charles Sharp. He got really good. He would say, where's your sticky note? He would come in and ask me for the sticky note. So he would do all he had to do. And then he made sure he addressed everything on my sticky note. That's the best way. Write it down before you get there. And if you don't understand, say, hey, I know you've explained this, but I need you to do this one more time for me. Just one more time. Explain it. Never leave your doctor's office not understanding what he or she has said to you. Sometimes they get caught up. They throw out those big words because they got like five of the patients to go. You have your insurance is paying the money. You paid your money. This is your time. Ask the question and take your pen and pencil in there with you. If you miss something, you write it down. My daughter um, had a a block in one of her ducts in her breast. So they had to go in because there was a mask there. And she was like 16. And it was so scary for her to go in every six months doing a mammogram, all the stuff. And, you know, the doctors are just talking like this over and she was just going, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm." and I, after the doctor said their piece, you got any questions? She was just like, I said, okay. So when she said this, what do you think she said? I don't know what that is. And I said, you need to ask her what that is. And I, I had that doctor step by step and I'll question my daughter. Did you understand when she said this? I made the doctor go back and break it down. They have to break it down so you can understand it. Just because a doctor has a medical doctorate degree doesn't mean they know everything. Right? They're listening to your symptoms and they're shooting in the dark trying to give it the best shot. Sometimes they mess up. You know, no harm, no foul, but sometimes they do. Write the stuff down and ask the questions, right? Because I I do. I was like, I'm not taking that. (laughs) But some of the stuff... You know, my mom was a nurse, and so she taught me how to use a physician's desk reference to go in and look up medication and look at who was tried on. The problem is with a lot of medication, it is not tried on tried out on black and brown people. There you go. It is not right. I've taken a blood pressure medication that swelled my lips, flipped them inside out, and I had to rush to the emergency room. So I had my friend who was a nurse at the time look it up and said, "Oh yeah, in black people, this causes facial edema." There you go. See, my doctor never said that. And so now I, as painful as it is, I actually open up those medication inserts and I read them. And then I Google what I don't understand. 
because you'd be surprised. Sometimes they do tell you this is not tested out on black people. So black yeah. people may do this, 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 this. And if you do, you need to see your doctor. Yeah. You have to yeah. advocate, learn it. Just because they were in that white coat doesn't mean they know it all. Mm-mm. No. And don't be afraid when you get those prescriptions too, you know, you can always ask the pharmacist. You can call the yeah. pharmacist or go to the pharmacist mm-hmm. and take them all. And if you're taking anything herbal or natural, oh. all those things can have contraindications, meaning they can yeah. interact in a negative way with medicine that you're prescribed. Even if you're taking something over the counter or something that's quote unquote natural, because a lot of natural things are very potent. They're very strong. And that's they why are. we take them because they work. So make sure you tell them everything that you may be taking. And if you want, if you want a second opinion, talk to the pharmacist because the pharmacists actually understand medications yes. better than the better. physician because that's what they, that's what pharmacology is, how drugs work in the body. So they'll be able to really go deep with you and be able to check and give you a more informed response. Like the doctors, they have the resources, like you said, the physician's desk reference and everything. They can look up the indications and all that stuff, but don't be afraid to talk to their pharmacist. Do not. And don't be afraid to question. So my daughter, one of my daughters is allergic to penicillin. And it was the first thing that comes out of my mouth with her pediatrician and a pediatrician nurse. Allergic to penicillin. She's allergic. And so, okay, we got that. And so they prescribed her the medication. And I was at work, different name, and I was at work, and I just said, something just does not seem right. So I had my friend look it up, and I called back home to my mom. Don't give that medication to her. That is penicillin. So we talked to the pharmacist and said, oh, she's allergic to penicillin. Let us put that in our system. I called the nurse back. She's allergic to penicillin. Oh, okay, we got you. They prescribed a second medication. Got it to the pharmacist. The pharmacist called me and said, Ms. Carter, I thought you told me your child was allergic to penicillin. I said, she is. Okay, so the nurse just phoned in another prescription for penicillin. So called back to her. My daughter is allergic to penicillin. Okay, we're going to prescribe this. Doctor calls me up and said, Ms. Carter, they just prescribed. He said, but don't worry about it. I got this. (laughs) So he called back to the office. People... Just because people have these degrees and licenses don't mean they don't make mistakes. Had I not questioned three times this nurse prescribed my child or got tried to get, you know, doctors prescribed, you know, nurses get sick, field calls it in three times penicillin, three times. Had I just went, well, they just know best because they're the doctor and the nurse. We'd have been in the emergency room with my child for taking penicillin and she has an old, she has an entire body reaction to that so it's okay to question if you don't look it up it's okay and you know by the time the pharmacist got done with the nurse because the nurse was should have told the doctor you can't prescribe it we can't do that yeah we got that straight but question question always double check it yeah i'm allergic to penicillin and sulfas and so whenever and i've gotten prescribed something that was in the penicillin family and and so what that situation taught me is because i know i'm allergic to two drugs uh, drug classes what i do now is whenever i have to get antibiotics which is very rare but if i do i i remind them when i go pick it up i say do you have on file can you ask the pharmacist to confirm that this is safe for me to take i don't and don't feel bad about doing that that's what these people are there for 
Right. It's Always ask body. them. Remind them. Can you ask the pharmacist to confirm that this is safe for me to take with this allergy? Because maybe maybe they, they should already be checking these things. But the reality of it is we know everybody's short staff right now, including yeah. the pharmacies. The doctor's offices, they have to do so much paperwork now for the insurance companies that right. everybody's moving too fast. And sometimes the computer systems have some checks built into it. But what if that record doesn't have in there that you're allergic? Sometimes things get accident, get deleted. Like things happen. Things happen. So never be, I, that's my habit now. Whenever I'm prescribed an antibiotic, I say, can you ask, I'm allergic to penicillins and sulfas. Can you ask the pharmacist to confirm that this is safe for me to take? And even what? if they say, oh, well, we've got it on file that you're, can you ask the pharmacist to confirm that this is safe for me to take? Right. You have to, you have to, and, and don't be, and don't hesitate if you know, and this is a thing that why a lot of people won't come in for anxiety, you know, therapy. And I do anxiety coaching and I do anxiety therapy as well. A lot of folks don't want to take medication. So I always I tell all my clients, so as a, in a therapist with my therapist hat on, I'm neither going to medication shame you, nor am I going to shove you to take medication, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of people do come to see me because I'm able to help them manage their anxiety without medication. But I always start off with, if we do this, and we get two, three months mm -hmm. in, and your, man, and your anxiety is not managed, at that point, I'm going to say, I'm referring you to go see your PCP for mm -hmm. a, a prescription for anxiety. But guess what? You can tell the doctor what you do and don't want. You, you can I know it mm -hmm. seems like I can't. You can. I told I coach my folks to say, and I've only done it. I've only recommended folks going in the last twelve years five times because some people had went through some trauma and the talk therapy wasn't quite working. I had to get that system downgraded, and talk therapy wasn't doing it. We need a little bit extra, and so I coached them to say, when you go in, say you want a course for four to six months. That's all I want to try this for, and I don't mm -hmm. want to take this because that, and I don't want anything that's addictive. Have the conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah, they'll write it down. So when you go in and talk to your doctor, you don't just have to take what they give you, right? Doctors yeah. have those drug reps come in. So doctors have their favors. You don't have to accept their favor just because it's their favorite. Ask for yeah. Here's what I'm going to do. And I don't want it more than this many months. You can mm -hmm. do that. I've been on depression medication before. It was a three to four month course. And that was it. You don't have to stay on these drugs for a lifetime. Sometimes you just need to get over the hump. Mm -hmm. Then the talk therapy can kick in and it works, but you don't have, just because you need it, it doesn't mean you're going to be on it for life. You may need it for three to six months. You may need it six to 12. And you know, a few people may need it for a lifetime, but you never know until you ask, come in talk with your therapist as a licensed professional counselor, a licensed clinical professional um, counselor. We do not prescribe medication. We do talk therapy. We do mental health therapy. So you need a doctor, you know, a PCP, a psychiatrist, or your medical doctor. And some certified um, nurse practitioners have gone on and they, they will prescribe medication. And sometimes a, a physician's assistant will too. But never, you know, pretty much your psychologist don't and your therapist don't. But we recommend if we see, you know, I can look, you know, it's, it's two months in and you're up here, you're still crying, can't sleep at night. And we're two months in talk therapy. It's, I'm like, you need to go see your doctor. And pretty much all five of the people I recommended came back and said, you were right. You were exactly right. Because they were they were like, I don't want to take medication. No, 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 no. I was like, it's not this. You need a little bit extra. And 
all five of them was like, you were right. I should have done this a long time ago. But there's, you know, I don't medication shame. If you need the medication, take it. If you need uh, insulin, don't you just take it? I mean, you're not are you ashamed of taking insulin for diabetes. It should be the same thought process if you got to take some anti-anxiety medication, you know, some depression medication. But you can, you can talk with that doctor. Here are my fears, you know, give them a good background. I'm allergic to this or this is what I like to eat, this, 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 this. So they're not trying to prescribe you something kind of sort of in the dark, right? And you can start at the lowest doses. You don't have to start out at a high dosage, but have the conversation. Yeah. Thank you for that. And you've, you've mentioned your services and coaching a few times. And so I want you to share with the audience, like what services do you offer and in terms of your coaching and then on the therapy side and what states So we know for the coaching, you can do that nationwide right. for the therapy side that is state specific due to the licensure requirements. So if you right. can specify, so we'll talk about your coaching services okay. and then we can talk about your therapy set, uh, options next. Okay. So as a cert, I am a certified health coach. And mainly what I do is, is as a career transition coach, I actually help women who are dealing with anxiety and they're not happy in their career. And they come in to see me like I'm not happy. And I do the career services as well as the anxiety coaching. But I also see people who come to me just because of anxiety. I have anxiety. I don't need a therapist. I don't want to see a therapist. I already got the anxiety. Can you help me? And, you know, I have I have strategies and I have skills and I have techniques that I use with them to help them manage anxiety up to and including brain spotting and hypnosis. And so you don't have to be licensed to do brain spotting nor hypnosis. Right. So I do all of that on the coaching side of the house. And a lot of people don't know that when you get anxiety coaching that you can that's actually covered on your flexible spending account because you're saying you're telling me what your diagnosis is. As coaches, we do not diagnose people. All right. You're telling us I got anxiety. That is what I run with. I will say, though, with all of my coaches, I tell them, if I see you decompensating, you're getting worse. I'm going to shift you over and tell you to go see a licensed, you know, mental health provider because you're having some things that I can't manage in coaching. Now, obviously, I am also a licensed therapist, but with my coaching clients, I only do coaching. I never mix the two. I want them to have a separate therapist. So as I concentrate on the coaching and helping them hit their goals, where they want to go, that therapist is doing that background work and that digger deeping to help them get better in therapy, right? And so that's what I do um, for, for women. I do mainly see women. I do see some men. It's just that my target audience are women, right? And so on the therapy side of the house, again, I'm a licensed clinician um, and I'm licensed in Alabama, Virginia, Maryland, and New Jersey. So Therapy clinicians, social workers, you know, mental health therapists, we go by many names. You have to be licensed by the state to, to, to provide that therapy. So that's why I only do therapy in those four states because that's where I have licenses, right? Now, we are trying to change that so that um, if, you're, if a clinician is licensed in one state, she or he or she can still treat clients in the other states. And we're getting fairly close, a lot closer because of COVID than we've been before. And so typically in on the therapy side of the house, I see a lot of folks for anxiety and a lot of folks for depression. And oftentimes those underlying conditions for that depression and anxiety is trauma. So people don't typically come and say, hey, I got trauma. Mm -hmm. A few people do. They understand their childhoods have been traumatic or they've been in some traumatic relationships and they'll come to tell you that. Well, most people just come and say, I can't sleep. I can't eat. 
I'm nervous all the time, on alert. I'm always dreading things and thinking something's going to go wrong. And when I get in session with them, you know, that it typically traces back to some type of trauma. And there's a lot of trauma in our communities, right? And that people stuff it down. High, high functioning anxiety. You stuff that stuff down. It doesn't matter that I was molested as a child. I got to stuff that down. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that I was beat as a teenager. I got to stuff that stuff mm-hmm. down. It doesn't matter that I was picked on and beat up and bullied. I stuff that stuff down because I have to do well in school. I have to get a job. I have to support my, and the have to, have to, have to, have to, have to goes on. And where it comes mm-hmm. to a collision that is in therapy, they'll come in for anxiety and then I find out they have trauma. So I do a lot of, you know, going back in, you know, in therapy, we go back through the history and we look at what happened and then we link it to what's going on now to figure out where you want to go in the future. And then we use different strategies to get you, get you there. And so again, on coaching, I don't do any of the background stuff. I don't have to know your history. We don't have to know any of that because coaching is taking you where you are and helping you hit those goals, right? Um, but with therapy, we do. We take that time out for that. And so I'm excited to announce that I'm now offering brain spotting on both sides of the house. It is a wonderful way to process that trauma, wonderful way to do the anxiety management, you know, and I'm happy that because between brain spotting and hypnosis and some of the other, you know, Cognitive behavior therapy is typically the standard, right? But we also yeah. know that cognitive behavior therapy doesn't always work for black women, right? Yes. It, it, it don't it don't hit the way it needs to for black mm-hmm. women. So that's why I'm excited to um, to be able to offer brain spotting now and hypnosis because we can hit where CBT doesn't pick up cognitive behavior therapy. CBT it doesn't quite hit for all black women. We have other therapies and other techniques that we can use to get you to process the trauma, to resolve the anxiety so it doesn't affect your life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you, like, I'm so excited that more therapists are offering coaching. Like, I'm so excited about that because even though I recognize that you all have to keep it separate in terms of of your services and everything, but to be able to have therapists who have that, that clinical training and that background to be able to give those appropriate referrals when need is just is so key because like you said so much stems from trauma and having more people out there who are trained to recognize that and refer folks to the appropriate resources is just so important so i'm so excited with everything that you're doing and all of your services are virtual yes all my services are virtual um again i do therapy in those four states only alabama Virginia, Maryland, and New Jersey. And my coaching, I do internationally in the United States and internationally outside of the United States as well. Wonderful. And so can you share your website and social media info? It'll also be in the description box, but if you can just sure. say it. So sure. So um, the best way to reach me is on Linktree. I love Linktree. <laughs> I get to put all of my social media in one place and that's mm-hmm. link, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Dr. Tawana Carter. And you'll find all my coaching services there. For my therapy, um, my company is JBC Counseling and Consulting um, LLC. That's the name of the company. And all of that is my my website address, www.jbccounselingandconsulting.com. So my therapy, um, my therapy practice is named after my mom. I couldn't figure out a name, so I couldn't practice. And my mom passed away September 26, 2010. And about three weeks or so after um, her death, it just hit me. I have a name. I now have a name for my business. So the JBC actually stands for 
Janelle Bush Carter, which was my mom's name. So I do, she was a nurse. Um, she dropped out of school to have me at 15. She and my dad got married when my mom was 15 and she turned um, 16 two weeks later and always wanted to be a nurse, had a math phobia, but at 53 or 51, she went back to school and at 53, she became a nurse. So, oh my goodness. I, um, yeah, yeah. So I do everything I do in my therapy, it's, I do it in honor of her. It's a memorial to her. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That is beautiful. Yes, that is beautiful. Is is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with before we wrap up? Yes. You know, I'm I'm prior service in the army. And you know, we're you know, it's whole now we're like army strong. Doesn't matter how strong you are, it's okay to ask for help. If you gotta start small, start small and ask for help. Because it doesn't make sense. I suffered 30 something years before I understood I even had anxiety, social anxiety. Needless years of suffering, and you don't have to do that. There are lots of clinicians of color out there that, you know, if you just say, I want someone who understands my culture, you got it. You know, Taraji P. Henson has a foundation, the, Bor the Boris Lawrence, Lawrence Henson Foundation, named after her dad who had mental illness untreated. She is offering five sessions of free therapy for anybody who signs up for it. You know, the goal is to get more people of color to get therapy. And so if you say, I don't have money, well, you can get five free sessions. And she's in most states. There's some states who have more therapists than others, right? And if you say, I just, I just want a clinician of color. Well, there's a website called Clinicians of Color. It's Clinicians of Color. Psychiatrists, psychologists you know, counselors, social workers, hypnotists, coaches, we are there. You have therapy for black girls. This therapy in the number four, therapy for black girls. It is there if you say, I just want someone who understands my culture because I'm suffering at work from all these microaggressions from the people around me. I don't want to go to my therapist and have to pull down and squash down and hold back because my therapist doesn't understand my background. You know, there are coaches, there are hypnotherapists, and they're a therapist. We are here to help. Start there. Start there. You don't have to hire me. Hire whoever you want to, but do reach out for help. It doesn't make sense to needlessly suffer. Yes. Yes. Amen. All of that. <laughs> and I, I'll include those links for uh, Taraji's foundation and for Therapy for Black Girls and, and clinicians the clinicians website. And yes, I should have said there is one for black men too, actually. I know your women is ours, but there is one for black men. Well, we, we include the resources for, oh, for our oh, guys too. So uh, if you when you think of that, you can send it to me via email and I'll include all those links okay. um, in the description box so that people can can access them and share them. Yes, so. it's therapy F O R for blackmen.org. Oh, okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Oh my goodness. This this was like such a good conversation. <laughs> I so I really amazing. enjoyed this. It's just I'm I'm happy that there are more men coming in, but too many of us women think we're we're still being superwoman because that's how we've been socialized and trained. And it's it's a it's a process to untrain. It truly is. It is. It is. And I think what's wonderful is that people are openly talking about it you know people are openly talking about like oh i struggle with anxiety i struggle with depression and having these we're destigmatizing it and shame prevents people from yeah 
asking for or receiving help so often. And so now we're kind of removing that shame from it and making it possible for people to say, hey, these are my struggles and I don't have to struggle like this forever. Yeah. yeah. And the younger people, what's amazing is that these younger people will grow up yeah. and hopefully they won't have to see like we're having to heal and rebuild and reprogram. And, you know, that's so, that's so extra. It, it is. <laughs> it really is. It's so extra. But these kids, at least, you know, the younger folks, they're growing up having that freedom to be able to say, you know what, I don't have to do all that, you know, and being able to access those resources, because I'm so glad, you know, it used to be when you were talking about the men needing to be tough all the time. I was thinking about when when I grew up, if a little boy fell or something, you would tell him, don't cry. You know, you're a man, you're a boy, you're a boy, you're not supposed to cry. So basically, you train them to say, if you hurt, ignore it. Yeah. If you're in pain, push it down. And Mm -hmm. here's the thing. People often wonder why women stay in domestic violence situations for so long. From the outside, it doesn't make sense. I said, but when you have folks minimizing and telling you it's your fault that you did something, you make me do this, it's your fault, it's your fault. You're not hurt. I didn't hurt you. That's not true. You tell a person that long enough, that's a form of brainwashing. So we've been brainwashing our boys all Mm -hmm. these years to ignore pain, pretend you don't hurt. Mm -hmm. And then do they have mental illness? Yes, there are some mental issues going on. It's we train them all these years. When your brain experiences pain, you go, you're not in pain. I'm in pain. You're not in pain. After you tell the brain that for so long, it doesn't know what reality is anymore. Which is why women mm-hmm. stay. You, I love you. I didn't hurt you that bad. It's just your fault. You should have done. Their brain no longer quite knows reality. And now they doubt themselves. And so what I see, I don't know if I'm really seeing it. What I hear, I don't know if I'm really hearing it. What I'm understanding, I don't know if I'm really understanding that. So they mm-hmm. latch on to that person as their reality. And they stay thinking, I cannot do anything if I ever leave this person. Again, looking from the outside, you can't understand it. But when you start breaking that stuff down and looking at it from the inside, it's a form of brainwash. Mm-hmm. It's deep. It's just, <laughs> there's so much unlearning yeah. that has to be done, all from just how we discipline kids. You know, it's just how we talk. I mean, the, it's just, it's a lot. Like we'll, we'll be talking for another two hours <laughs> if we go down that path, but we, we need to revisit that because I mean, some, so much of it, I think is, is really helpful to discuss because a lot of parents want to do things different, mm-hmm. but they don't know where to start yeah. because we were trained that you're supposed to raise a child in a certain way. Now I have and, a cousin that is her thing. She's a parent coach and I love Lashonda because Lashonda is, is black and Hispanic. So her mom was from Panama and her daddy from Alabama. You can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you can only imagine how those two cultures coalesced and how they were raised. And so um, I will, I'll send her your, I'm going to do an introduction because she, that's what she does. And okay. she has a lot of traction on that. She studied and whatnot. And I think you really enjoy a conversation with her from her perspective. And I love it because she has the Hispanic and the African-American. She gets it from both cultures and she just made mm-hmm. a decision to raise her children differently. And there are a lot of folks okay. out there struggling. Like I need to do this differently. 
but where are the resources as a Hispanic parent, as a black parent, stuff that yeah. pertains to us that we understand. So I'll do a, um, put a note here. I'm going to do an introduction because she will I'll be a note. great person um, to have that. on your show. I've got a list of things to send you and I will definitely, I'm making a note to put that in my notes for you. Okay. To cousin for parenting. So thank you so much. This is thank just you been for having me. Like, this is so nice. insightful. Yeah. So you all, I'll have all of Tawana's information in the description box, along with all of those links that she mentioned and make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss any of the episodes when they're released on the YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast app. Like these are the conversations that we need to be having. And thankfully more people are having them, but even more importantly than, than the conversation, these are the people like you and other people who are doing the work that you're doing are the people that we need to be connected with. Because with this expansion of coaching services, like you can help folks around the world. Yeah, um, I've had I've with, spoken to people in Israel. I've coached people in Dubai and Canada um, because the pe some people just some folks are in certain jobs. And they don't want therapy because then they have to go through this whole thing, declaring it, getting mm -hmm. a whole issue. Yes. Right. But for yes. anxiety, you know. We can do it in coaching. Like I said, I don't do any diagnosis. They come to me and say they got anxiety, got anxiety. That's all I need to know. What do you want to do? What are you not doing and what do you want to do? All right, here you go. Here's how we get you there. And right. you don't have to declare like, oh, I'm in therapy and I'm seeing a therapist because then it goes like, are you taking medication? And it becomes an issue for some folks. I remember working for the VA and I was sitting there talking to these combat veterans. I sure do have PTSD. Mm -hmm, I know that. I'm a police officer. I'm a police chief. Mm -hmm. The moment I see a therapist, I have to declare that. Yeah. And my job is affected. I'm not getting treatment for it. So they did. Yeah. Of course, it's yeah. an issue. You jump mm -hmm. black folk too. Policing, but we're not going to go there just today. But yeah. they refuse. They're like, I know I have PTSD, but I'm not getting treated because I don't want to have to declare that. And then the mm -hmm. medication, I can't do that. Not going to do it. Whereas on the coaching, you know, they can get the anxiety portion of it. So definitely. I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because it's, and you're right, we, we won't gotta go down that rabbit hole today, but a lot of people don't understand. It's easy to say, why don't they get help? But people aren't educated or enlightened about all those barriers. When you say in certain professions, when you say that you were going to therapy, it opens up a whole can of worms. And that's something else, a whole nother thing that we have to advocate and tackle because yes. the destigmatization, it, it doesn't help if we get more people to be aware that they're suffering. If their very livelihood is threatened right. by right. them healing. Correct. Correct. And I've gotten those letters. I'm trying to get a secret security clearance. I'm trying to get a top secret. Mm -hmm. And I told them that I saw you and now I've got to release all my stuff. And, yeah. you know, when you see your therapist, you don't expect to have to give that to your employer. No. You know, and it's not, no. you know, and I get why they do it, but who wants to see their therapist and, you know, and I'm real careful what I put down and that's why I am, because I know at some point I may have to release, but people want to come and feel comfortable saying whatever it is to their therapist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For most people, that's the only place. 
you know, there are places I, even as an attorney, because it was interesting to me that sometimes like a lot of my clients, they wouldn't go see the therapist, even though that was part of the services that we offered in the program, mm -hmm. they wouldn't go see the therapist, but they would come, you know, see the lawyer for different, for, for the legal services, but you can't separate trauma. And so that would come up in a situation. And I had clients who shared things with me that they would say, I've never told anybody else this, but people know attorney client privilege. So they'll tell right. you all kinds right. of things. It's like, oh, this isn't in my lane. You really need to go talk to the And it's cumulative. And that's the thing about trauma. It, it is cumulative. So if you got the crap beat out of you on the school because you looked a certain way or you were whatever, and then you grow up and you get a boyfriend who's abusive, and then you go to your job and they're verbally abusive, it's trauma on trauma on trauma on trauma on trauma. Hmm. And some some women, especially black women, we almost one leg off in the grave before we go get help. But you've had cumulative trauma your entire well, we, life. Cause we got stuff to do. We got to keep it moving. Yeah. Yeah. We got to keep it moving. We got, we got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Until we can't do it anymore. A exactly. Exactly. Which if you now we know if you get help, just get the help, whatever it is, you know, because um, normally to rise to the, the foundations, you know, you can't see any, we're not going to sign you any more than 10 people. I've been disappointed. There are not that many therapists here in Alabama, but they end up sending me, I think, close to 20 or 30 because there were no other therapists. There wasn't enough therapists and people were coming in. You know, it's just five sessions, but it's five sessions. They didn't have before now that i've added brain spotting i can actually resolve some trauma mm -hmm. quickly in those five sessions mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. just doing a talk there yeah thank you you're welcome yeah we like need to clone y'all that's what we need we need more <laughs> black therapists we are we we're really... out there there are more men coming on board just yeah. you know trickling in but definitely we are out there yeah yeah well, thank you. like having a client sit there and tell you that they went to a white therapist and then they got, you know, trauma all over again because the person didn't understand. And then you're sitting there because what are we trained? We're trained that we support white people. So your therapist say this, but I can't really open up to you now. Now I'm trying to support you. So you don't cry. It's a whole mess. <laughs> oh, Lord. It's just a whole <laughs> It's a whole, it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Sometimes I sit there and, and then they leave and I just be like, I just go to like this and you're like. <sighs> but we're making progress. We are. We are. We, we really are. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Because in large part, because of the work that you do. So, so yes. So thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.